0: Thank you for tuning in to Finish the Fight, a gaming podcast. If you have not, be sure to check out our Patreon at patreon.com slash finish the fight, where we have some amazing merch and plenty of other things for you guys.
1: Welcome back to Finish the Fight, a gaming podcast, where we produce and develop the highest quality gaming research in podcast form. I am your host, Alex Kendall, and I am your host, Derek Baker. And we're taking it back today,
0: taking it to the late 40s, black and white. Mm. Film noir going
1: on. I'm in my detective... Hidey-hole, as they call it, I assume. And I'm looking out the rainy window. (laughs) They weren't offices back then. They were (laughs) hidey-holes. Yeah. I'm in my hidey-hole. I take a drag of my 1947 unfiltered whatever type of cigarettes I had back then. And therein she walks, saying, It's me, Rockstar. I've made you another (laughs) game that is not Grand Theft Auto. (laughs) <laughs> oh oh yes the noir genre <laughs> yes such an accurate representation that was good
0: yes this is one of those games for me that was a weird under the radar rock star game and the only reason i really knew about it and played it at midnight was i worked at best buy and they said hey you have to stay late tonight i was like what they're like la Noirs coming out i went okay and then some dude <laughs> Work- in line told me about it. <laughs> Working at GameStop,
1: you know, they used to have those TVs, at least in mine. Mm-hmm. I don't know if this was a common GameStop thing, but they would play ads from GameStop basically a few times every 20 minutes. So okay. I was very, very aware of L.A. Noir. Man. Yeah. What an era. <laughs> what an <laughs> but- era.
0: Yeah, it's, it's one of those games. Again, this is kind of like that weird experimental rock star era where you had like table tennis, you had Bully, you had a couple other ones that were coming out that were these like interesting rock star grabs around the GTA series, still being their bread and butter. And LA Noire dropped in 2011, um, testing out some new technology that today looks dated, but at the time was really cutting edge. And this was almost more of a tech sample a rock star than anything of just kind of like flexing their muscles their you know game engine muscles and like
1: what can we do in the 2010s to change the world of gaming absolutely because the facial recognition being really a core aspect of the gameplay to to have to read faces that are mm-hmm. and, and react to these things in a video game we really hadn't seen it Done this way before. And so they employed, you know, professional actors. They obviously worked really hard to develop um, this facial technology, which we'll talk about obviously in the, the later part of the episode. But it really was this unique detective game. And I agree with you. I think that it, it mostly comes off more like a tech demo at the end of the day. But I think they picked a great setting for this. I think the game is mm-hmm. a lot of fun. I think maybe the replayability of a game like this suffers a little bit just from its premise, but I think they nailed a lot of the aspects of noir and the detective genre. So let's go ahead and and just hop into the game. L.A. Noir is a 2011 detective action-adventure video game developed by Team Bondi and published by Rockstar Games. It's set in Los Angeles in the year 1947, The game follows Detective Cole Phelps' rise among the ranks of the Los Angeles Police Department as he solves a range of cases across various bureaus. When he is tasked with investigating a morphine distribution ring that involves several of his former squadmates from World War II, Phelps finds both his personal and professional life falling into turmoil and reluctantly joins forces with his estranged former comrade Jack Kelso. As the pair delve deeper into the case, they uncover a major conspiracy centered around the Suburban Redevelopment Fund program and several prominent figures in Los Angeles involved with it. The game is played from a third-person perspective. The player may freely roam its interactive open world, primarily in a vehicle or on foot. As the game progresses, the player advances through several police department bureaus, patrol, traffic, homicide, vice, and arson. The story is divided into multiple cases during which players must investigate crime scenes for clues follow-up leads and interrogate suspects and witnesses the player's success at these activities impacts how much of each case's story is revealed and their overall rating the game features fast paced action sequences including chases combat and gunfights outside of cases The player can complete optional street crimes and collect items found around the game world. The development of L.A. Noire began following Team Bondi's founding in
0: 2004 and was assisted by multiple Rockstar Studios worldwide. L.A. Noire uses the proprietary motion capture technology Motion Scan, which captures actors' facial expressions from every angle, resulting in a realistic recreation of a human face essential for the game's interrogations. As part of their research for the open world, the development team conducted field research in Los Angeles. The game features an original score inspired by 1940s films and contains licensed music of songs from the era. The game was delayed numerous times through its seven-year development, which included a change of publisher and platforms. The working hours and managerial style of the studio was met with public complaints from staff members, and Team Bondi closed shortly after the game's initial release. Ellie Noir was the first video game honored as an official selection at the Tribeca Film Festival. The game was released for the PlayStation 3 and Xbox 360 consoles in May 2011 and for Microsoft Windows in November as well. An enhanced version was released for Nintendo Switch, PlayStation 4 and Xbox One in November 2017. The game received positive reviews from critics, with praise directed at the facial animation, narrative, characters' performances, music, world design, and interrogation gameplay, though responses to the shooting and driving mechanics were mixed. It shipped 4 million units in its first month, and 7.5 million by September 2017, and received multiple year-end nominations from gaming publications. L.A. Noir, The VR Case Files, a subset of cases playable in virtual reality, was released in
1: December 2017. So obviously a really cool concept. Um, where they, like we said, they wanted to try and develop a video game that was based more around the facial technology. And we've, I think, played a lot of games at this point that are sort of more like playable movies. Mm-hmm,
0: and mm-hmm. I think
1: that L.A. Noir definitely fits in that category. And I think that that's where it was designed to fit in altogether as well. So kind of interesting to see the Tribeca Film Festival recognize that as well.
0: Yeah, it's kind of the first to it. It's kind of that idea that cinematics aren't just for the motion pictures anymore, that like cinematics can play a large role in the gaming sphere and create that
1: narrative and story that is interactive, but still plays out like a movie. And so Team Bondi Property Limited was an Australian video game developer based in Sydney. The company was founded by creative director Brendan McNamara, formerly of Team Soho in 2003. The studio's first and only title, the action-adventure game L.A. Noire, was announced in July of 2005, and the development was originally funded and overseen by Sony Computer Entertainment Australia, although all publishing duties later switched hands to Rockstar Games. L.A. Noire was released by Rockstar Games initially for PS3 and Xbox 360 in May of 2011 to both commercial and critical success. Despite the positive reception, Team Bondi faced several allegations of poor working conditions by several former employees, causing controversy for the studio and leading Rockstar Games to part ways with Team Bondi following L.A. Noire's release. As a result of this, the developer saw itself unable to sign a publishing deal for a new game that was being written by McNamara. In August 2011, the company's assets, as well as the intellectual property to a new game being written by McNamara, were acquired by film production company Kennedy Miller Mitchell. Team Bondi was placed into administration on August 31, 2011, and finally entered liquidation on October fifth of that same year. Many former Team Bondi staff members were transferred to Kennedy Miller-Mitchell's KMM Interactive Entertainment subsidiary and started developing the game around McNamara's script, which would eventually become Whore of the Orient. KMM Interactive Entertainment was shut down in April of 2013, following Warner Brother Interactive Entertainment's withdrawal from the Whore of the Orient project as its publisher. The game, despite receiving government funding after the studio's closure, was canceled shortly after. A successor to both Team Bondi and KMM Interactive Entertainment, Intuitive Game Studios, was announced by two former L.A. Noire and Horror of the Orient developers in May of 2013.
0: So, a bit unfortunate, we're going to dive a little deeper into some of those controversies and some of those statements, but... A fledgling studio comes out with a game like this that is using cutting edge technology and sees great success. Unfortunately, kind of leads to its own demise by not paying attention to those people working on the game, not taking care of them, and ultimately leads to pretty much everyone's downfall, unfortunately.
1: Yeah, this has been a big issue in the gaming industry and has been in the loot the and has been in the news. Been in the lose. <laughs> and it's been in the news a lot recently, uh, especially in the last few years. And it's something that, you know, yeah, I'm glad that we get great games. And I think that the people in the in this industry are doing a lot of great things and have great vision. But we got to look out for ourselves first and foremost. Mm-hmm. And I hope that, you know, studios continue to learn that, you know, despite the end result, uh, the means are important as well. Absolutely. So let's get into it. After the release of The Getaway,
0: writer and director Brendan McNamara left developer Team Soho and moved from London to his native Sydney. In mid-2003, he founded the six-person development studio Team Bondi alongside former Team Soho developers. The development of L.A. Noir began shortly thereafter, in 2004. The studio had signed an exclusive deal with Sony Computer Entertainment to develop a game for the PlayStation 3, though the publishing rights were handed to Rockstar Games by September 2006. The development team visited Rockstar’s headquarters in New York every few months to exhibit progress. Development was assisted by multiple studios owned by Rockstar Games worldwide. Analyst estimates placed the game’s combined development and marketing budget at more than 50 million US dollars which would make it one of the most expensive video games to develop at the time. Unlike other games by Rockstar, which run on the Rockstar Advanced game engine, L.A. Noire uses a proprietary engine from Team Bondi. McNamara led the founding of Depth Analysts, a sister company to Team Bondi that developed the motion capture technology Motion Scan, which records actors with 32 surrounding cameras to capture facial expressions from every angle. Resulting in a highly realistic recreation of a human face. The technology is central to the game's interrogation mechanic, as players are required to use reactions to questioning to judge whether they are lying. Rockstar was often doubtful about the process, and the team considered using the same technique as other Rockstar games like Red Dead Redemption as a fallback. The game also uses Havoc as its physics engine. Eleven cases across two desks. Bunko, and Burglary, were cut from the game as the team suspected they would not fit on one Blu-ray. A similar system to Grand Theft Auto's wanted system, wherein the player would evade and attack other police officers, was also removed,
1: as it felt out of character for Phelps. McNamara had been interested in 1940s Los Angeles for some time. While working on The Getaway, he had a screensaver of the first freeway being built in Los Angeles and felt that the improvement in lighting systems from the PlayStation 2 to PlayStation 3 allowed the possibility to explore the film noir genre. He began with writing a four-to-five-page outline before reading stories from the Los Angeles Public Library to use as inspiration. The team spent the first year and a half of development researching Los Angeles by using newspapers and magazines, organizing research trips, and capturing photographs. A total of 180,000 photographs were available as resources throughout development, and over 1,000 newspapers were used for research. The open world of 1947 Los Angeles was modeled using aerial photographs taken by photographer Robert Spence, which helped to create traffic patterns and public transport routes, as well as the location and condition of buildings. Building interiors were also based on real buildings in L.A., the team extensively studied the Barclay Hotel for an accurate recreation in-game. While striving for an accurate recreation, the team took some artistic license, including the appearance of the set for the film Intolerance, which was destroyed prior to the 1940s, but included to celebrate its history. The team created over 140 production Bibles during development, acting as style guides with information about floor plans, dressing, signs, graphics, Lighting and reference materials. Several in-game cases were inspired by real-life crimes reported by the city's media at the time. For example, the case "The Red Lipstick Murder" is based on the unsolved murder of Jean French in February of 1947. When creating the themes, narrative visuals, and sounds of the game, McNamara and the team were inspired by several films, albums, television, and radio shows, as well as books. Now, Ellie Noir has over 20 hours of voice work and over
0: 400 actors performed for the game. McNamara felt that the game's technology allows players to connect with the characters in a way that video games had not achieved. He aimed to go on a personal journey with character. The team engaged Michael Uppendahl to direct the actors due to his familiarity with the process. To cast the characters the team held secretive auditions. Aaron Statton was cast to portray Cole Phelps and worked on the project for about 18 months. Rockstar Vice President of Creativity Dan Hauser had suggested Statton for the role. Prior to performing, Statton received a 12-page document that outlined the story and Phelps' history, as he was unable to read the entire 2,200-page script beforehand. Makes sense. Regarding the switch in player character from Phelps to Kelso, McNamara explained that the player had to, quote, go outside the realm of being a cop to bend the rule. He felt that the ending was akin to A Tale of Two Cities, with the characters coming full circle, where Phelps could do something for Kelso for once. Phelps' death was partly inspired by the ending of the film Chinatown. A gameplay sequence was originally meant to take place after Phelps' death, but it was cut after some time as it never really worked out, which kind of makes sense, um, like kind of having it end the way it does, which we'll get into in the story, uh, kind of makes it that cinematic, I don't know, if masterpiece can even be thrown around at this, but kind of makes it that cinematic finish that you it's want. It's
1: very, it's very noir. It's very yes. that there's not really a true winner in the story. Yes, and exactly. So it makes sense to to end it the way that they did. Now, of course, we alluded to this a little bit earlier. Obviously, with all this great work came a lot of responsibilities for the staff and so let's talk about those complaints and the working conditions. Shortly after the launch of the game, a group of former Team Bondi employees launched a website called LAnoircredits.com containing over 100 names which had been excluded or incorrectly listed in the official game credits. An anonymous employee claimed that he was asked to work 10-12 to 12 hours every day, including weekends. Following this, in a report by IGN, several anonymous members of the development team publicly discussed the managerial style of the studio, the studio's staff turnover rates, and the working hours and conditions associated with L.A. Noir. Some claimed that McNamara had been controlling and verbally abusive, and others spoke about their increased workload as a result of the studio's high turnover. Several referenced the ongoing crunch throughout development. One claimed to occasionally work between 80 and 110 hours per week to meet some development milestones. Some ex-employees claimed that they were not paid for their overtime, a claim McNamara refuted. Following the publication of IGN's report, the International Game Developers Association launched an investigation against Team Bondi to verify the claims made. Lead gameplay programmer David Hieronymus and senior gameplay programmer Charles Lefevre rebuked the claims, acknowledging that Crunch was unfortunate but inevitable and stating that they were not aware of any unpaid overtime or abusive working conditions. McNamara felt that he had been unfairly maligned by many ex-employees, noting that other artists and businessmen in other industries such as Steve Jobs, Sam Peckinpah, and Werner Herzog had performed worse actions than him with much less vilification. He claimed that the studio had improved its working conditions in the months after release, including the introduction of FlexiTime. In July 2011, a series of confidential emails were leaked, along with further comments from staff members who claimed that they highlight the contentious relationship between Team Bondi and Rockstar. McNamara questioned how the confidential emails were allowed to be shared, noting that it sets, quote, a pretty dangerous precedent. Speaking to GameIndustry.biz, an anonymous source from the development team claimed that Rockstar saved the project, but that the relationship between Rockstar and Team Bondi was badly damaged, and that it was quite clear that further collaborations were unlikely. The source claimed that Rockstar was frustrated with the direction at Team Bondi, and as a result, management at Team Bondi resented Rockstar for taking lots of creative control. They added that Rockstar used to be very keen on making Team Bondi something like Rockstar Sydney, but the more they worked with Team Bondi management, the more they came to understand that this was a terrible idea. McNamara remained optimistic about his relationship with Rockstar and said that hopefully it doesn't have any hard feelings about us.
0: Yeah, I just want to jump in real quick, and it's never great. Like, you never are like, no, 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 we don't have those practices, we're fine. It's never great when you're like, oh, yeah? Well, we're not as bad as these other really
1: big company people, so how can we be bad? Right. Yeah, that whole visionary thing where it's, again, the means to an end. Mm -hmm. Like, you have to take into consideration the people working for you. And like, like I said before, I think that this has a lot more attention now than it did when this game was in production. Sure. And this was really, I think, a big turning point in the gaming industry because there were these really big projects with this new tech that took a lot of time for these people. And I don't care what industry you're in, working 80 to 110 hours a week is absolute insanity. Oh, and absolutely. You know, obviously, I'm very thankful for their effort and I enjoy LA Noir, but not at that cost. I'd rather that. People be happy and and that these companies are able to put out good products and also be respectful to the employees. So a lot of valid concerns and some things that I'm glad that Rockstar recognized and realized like, hey, we can't continue to work with Mm -hmm. Team Bondi in this capacity, especially because Rockstar's had a lot of those accusations levied against them uh, on their own. And so to double down on that, I think, would have been a big mistake.
0: I think that's exactly it. I I think when you, when you look at it and like, you're right, we're finally kind of getting to an age of where like people now all understand crunch in the gaming industry. And before it's like, just make me my game and not be like, Oh no, those are miserable conditions. Like we can't be pumping this stuff out like we do. And that's why you have a lot of companies. And I think a lot of people get the praise from it of like, we're going to have to push one more year back. We don't want to go into crunch. We need one more year. And as disappointing as it, as it is to not have your favorite game coming out, like to be like, oh, these people can see their families and aren't burnt out. Like this won't be their last game because for so many people, yep. like when you're working 110 hours, you're like I'm done, like my full capacity to like program or create or design is done
1: right and it's one thing when it's a passion project on your own Mm -hmm. and we've talked in the past just about the games like in the early stages of video game development where it was a lot of passion projects it's one thing if you're willing to dedicate yourself to do that i think for like stardew valley concerned ape was spending a similar amount of time developing his game but that was his game it was his project that he wanted to do that and so mandating and forcing people to do this, I think that's where the line has to be drawn. Absolutely.
0: On a different term, I don't know if we're going to say positive or not, but let's talk about the marketing and kind of what Rockstar
1: put into this to get it out. Not enough for Alex to see it,
0: but enough for some other people to do
1: it. (laughs) Well, you were living under a rock, sir. This game was everywhere. Listen, apparently.
0: So an early cinematic trailer was released in October 2006. Rockstar's parent company, Take Two Interactive, acknowledged the game in June 2007, listing it for release in the 2008 fiscal year, so between October 07 through September 08, for the PS3. The game subsequently received several delays, first to the 2009 fiscal year, then to September 2010, and later to the first half of 2011, which was later narrowed down to May 17th, 2011 for North America, and May 20th for Australia and Europe. The game was the subject of Game Informer's cover story for its March 2010 issue. The debut trailer was released in November 2010, revealing that the game would release in early 2011 for the PS3 and Xbox 360. A development video was released in December 2010, demonstrating motion scan and featuring interviews with the cast and developers. The game's cover art was unveiled on February 23rd, 2011, and the game was exhibited at PAX East in March 2011 with an exclusive theater presentation. The final pre-launch trailer was released on May 11, 2011. To spur pre-order game sales, Rockstar collaborated with several retail outlets to provide pre-order bonuses. Rockstar also ran a competition to win a trip to L.A., to attend the Festival of Film Noir at the Grauman's Egyptian Theater and play the game a month before its release. In April 2011, Ellie Noir was honored as an official selection at the Tribeca Film Festival, the first video game to do so. Rockstar partnered with Holland Books to publish L.A. Noir, The Collected Stories, on June 6, 2011, featuring a collection of eight short stories in the L.A. Noir universe written by noted crime authors including Lawrence Block, Joe R. Lansdale, Joyce Carol Oates, Francine Prose, and Andrew Vach, The collection, edited and curated by Jonathan Santlifer, was completed in six weeks. Some of the writers, including Megan Abbott, Dwayne Swierinski, and Santlover, previewed an hour of the game for inspiration at Rockstar's headquarters in New York. Rockstar originally rejected St. Lefer's story as it spoiled some of the game's narrative. He began to write a second story before deciding to rewrite the first without spoilers. And Rockstar released an excerpt and five full stories before the game's release in May 2011.
1: Yeah, could you imagine they they spoil a very narrative-driven game like <laughs> months before the game actually comes out. It's such a big part of the story. I mean, this is really like an interactive film.
0: Mm-hmm. Absolutely, so
1: you had to absolutely be careful about that. So, of course, as an interactive film, as maybe I'll call it for the rest of this episode. I don't know. <laughs> maybe not. I'll just call it a game. Sure. The gameplay, <laughs> the gameplay of La Noir is in the action adventure neo noir crime category and it is played from a third person perspective. The game is set in an open world environment featuring LA in 1947. The player completes cases to progress through the story fulfilling objectives in a generally linear order as they roam the open world. And the player can also complete optional street crimes, short linear scenarios with very strict set objectives and collect items such as golden film reels, vehicles, novels, and golden records. The player can also discover multiple landmarks based on real monuments from Los Angeles in the 1940s. For most of the game, the player controls Cole Phelps, an LAPD patrolman who advances through the police department bureaus or desks of traffic, homicide, vice, and arson, and in some cases during the final desk the player controls Investigator Jack Kelso. The player has the option to play the game in black and white to imitate film noir. While solving cases, the player discovers evidence, including information from non player characters or physical clues found in or around crime scenes, locations of interest, or dead bodies. Several pieces of physical evidence can be manipulated or further investigated to discover more information. Alex, you see that empty bottle over there? Mm -hmm. Just pick that bad boy up. You can look at that other empty bottle too. (laughs) It won't help you, but you can. Mm -hmm. When all the key clues are discovered at a crime scene, the investigation music concludes so you don't have to keep picking up bottles over and over again. The player can also use telephones or game wells to contact the police radio and access additional information. During cases, the player interrogates suspects and witnesses to discover information. When the interviewee responds, the player is given the option to either believe them, doubt them, or accuse them of lying. If the player accuses them of lying, they must submit evidence to prove it. The player's in game notebook is used to list evidence, locations, and people involved in the case, as well as to select questions during interrogations. And of course, those options within the game sort of changed with different versions mm-hmm. of this gameplay development as well. Even in the re-releases that came out in 2017, they had once again changed it. It, it kind of went from truth, doubt, lie, to good cop, bad cop. Um, I, I can't remember what the third option is, but basically accuse, I think, yeah. as well. And, um, that led to some interesting moments, I think, in the game.
0: yeah, because like we said earlier when we were talking about just the preview of it, there is the true ending or the true case file that you're playing along with, like that will get them to reveal the actual information to get the full on case versus if you even if you just mess one up, it's not the true ending. So if you're able to go back through and get that, like that's that true side of it, and they've changed it up a little bit to kind of almost create your own narrative along with it, which is kind of interesting.
1: Right. There were certain cases that you would go through the process and you had to do them in a specific order, but there weren't always things that led you to different locations in any particular order. And so it was sort of Mm -hmm. something you had to discover through replayability. But I remember when this game came out that... You know, people noticed Cole would kind of fly off the handle mm-hmm. if you picked the wrong thing, and so it was sort of easy to test. You could always accuse someone of lying and then back out of it after the fact, but you could sort of tell right away along with the music clue if you had believed in them, if that was the right thing, or if they had actually lied to you but you didn't have evidence, you yep. should have doubted them, or if you did have the evidence. And it it led to some really interesting reactions mm-hmm. um, within the game.
0: It did, and so the cases wrap up typically like your major cases. You'll have it was usually two suspects when you're kind of on your earlier cases, and when you're interrogating those two suspects at the police station, you'll have to decide whom to charge with the crime. Charging the wrong suspect affects the case's end rating a five-star scale that is determined based on the player's performance in investigations, interrogations, and behavior while driving. The player can use intuition points during investigations to locate remaining clues, or during interrogation by removing an answer or discovering the most popular answer among players via the Rockstar Games Social Club. Progressing through the game will increase the player's rank, which unlocks outfits and hidden vehicles, and earns an additional intuition point. The maximum rank is 20. In some cases, while searching for clues, the player can discover newspapers, which provide access to a short cinematic covering a part of the game's overarching plot.
1: And that was definitely, I think, a very important underrated part of this plot Mm and gameplay. Because there is this big conspiracy happening that you're sort of discovering throughout, but you learn so much of the behind-the-scenes stuff from those newspapers. And I wish that they had uh, put in some kind of mechanic to where those weren't as hidden yeah. throughout the gameplay.
0: Almost like, too, if like you went to like the diner, or if you went to like one of those spots and was hanging on the wall in a thing, or like... Clearly on a table, that someone was reading, you can just get it if you want to see the cinematic instead of having to like hunt through and find it down an alley or down this room somewhere. That right. way you can if you wanted to just see this other content, you could.
1: Right. Because your partner would be yelling at you from across the room or down the street like, hey, man, why aren't you coming over here? It's mm-hmm. like, well, I'm sorry. I'm down in the alley looking <laughs> through this trash for the old newspaper. Just so I can get this little cinematic. That's what we do back in the 40s. So I got to see what's going on in the 40s, man. (laughs) You think that there's not things going on here? There's always things out in the 40s. (laughs) But yeah, there was some some funny stuff that sort of developed from the five-star scale as well, where if you were driving uh, poorly, let's Mm -hmm. call it, Mm -hmm. maybe you ran someone over. Oh, well, hey, you solved the case, but... Phelps, you ran a woman over. She died. Well, you know, what What you going to do? You know what? Leave that to homicide. I'm dealing with my case over here. <laughs> I'm trying to stop burning buildings here, Mac.
0: <laughs> so definitely some fun stuff that happens, like we talked about the five-star system and getting that case perfect, getting the actual ending of it. And so, the game's world is primarily traversed on foot or in a vehicle. The player can climb over fences and up pipes and ladders to access different areas. While driving, the player can turn on the siren, allowing them to clear passage through streets. The game also allows the player to skip travel sequences. As Phelps, they can nominate their partner as the driver and select the destination. As Kelso, who lacks a partner, they select the destination and arrive after a loading screen. As Phelps, the player can also ask their partner for direction. The game features fast-paced action sequences, including chases, combat, and gunfights. The player uses melee attacks and firearms to fight enemies. Weapons can be swapped by opening the boot of the player's police vehicle. In combat, auto-aim and a cover system can be used as assistance against enemies. Should the player take damage, the color will begin to fade to black, and white when free from damage the character's health will gradually regenerate and you get your colors back weapons can only be used in appropriate circumstances such as during firefights in some chase sequences the player has the option to fire a warning shot against fleeing suspects the player's partner will sometimes shoot at suspect vehicles during driving chase sequences and the player is presented with the option to skip action sequences and continue through the narrative Upon failing three times, so again, if for some reason it's too hard for you, or really you're just like, nah, I'm gonna watch this. I don't want to be a part of this. At the third <laughs> interval, you can be like, just skip this and see what happens. Yes, please.
1: Yeah, well, because there were, I can excuse this. I think in in La Noir specifically, mm-hmm. because there were some bad qualities within a lot of the gunplay yes there were some bad qualities within a lot of the movement um where things were just unnecessarily difficult and so i definitely understand wanting to skip past that stuff especially because it at the end of the day did not impact your five star rating no for your your case so it's really just kind of there for you to get a gist of of what's going on and most of the stuff is predetermined to begin with, anyway. So it's you know you're chasing a guy down. Maybe you catch him, but a lot of times it's impossible to catch him. Yeah. So it just doesn't matter. You know the guy's going to drive into a pole or something at the end of the the chase, and mm-hmm. you can't do anything about that. So why torture yourself? Yeah, and we're going to talk about a bit too, especially in critic reviews,
0: just how rough the gunplay and. Jerky, I guess, is one of the best ways to say, like the driving. It's ones. frustrating. It's it, frustrating. It, it was very frustrating. It kind of felt very like GTA 3 quick whip turns on that, kind of almost in that same engine feel until we get to four that was almost impossible to drive and then five, which feels comfortable in GTA. But yeah, it's just, it was rough. So yeah, having this just made it a bit better to be like, okay, I'm done with this. Just continue the game,
1: please. Absolutely. Yeah, definitely can't blame. Anyone for that, and as a narrative-driven game, obviously the characters were super important. Let's talk a little bit about the main characters mostly because there are, like we said, hundreds of actors that contributed to this Mm -hmm. game. But for most of the game, the player takes on the role of Cole Phelps, who is a decorated United States Marine Corps veteran from the Six Marines. Phelps begins the game as an LAPD patrol officer alongside his partner Ralph Dunn, who's another new recruit. When Phelps is promoted to the traffic desk, led by Gordon Leary, he is partnered with Stefan Bukowski, a Polish-American with whom Phelps eventually befriends. Upon his promotion to Homicide, led by James Donnelly, Phelps is partnered with Rusty Galloway, a weary and cynical detective who often challenges Phelps' theories and opinions. Um, if you played this game, basically this guy says it's the spouse. Mm-hmm, every um, time, I think 99% of the time, it's the <laughs> spouse. Yep. <laughs> in the vice bureau led by Archie Kohlmeier, Phelps becomes partners with Roy Earl, a sardonic and corrupt detective with whom Phelps repeatedly clashes over morality, behavior, and technique. Um, because this guy's a little bit dirty mm-hmm. during his time in vice, Phelps begins an extramarital affair with Elsa Lichtman, a German jazz singer. And as a detective, Phelps frequently works with coroner Dr. Malcolm Carruthers and technical crime scene investigator Ray Pinker, So a lot of different characters without giving away too much of their personalities. But following his demotion to the arson desk led by Lachlan McKelty, Phelps is partnered with Herschel Biggs, a former Marine and proficient detective who is reclusive and opposed to partners. For some cases during arson, the player assumes control of Jack Kelso, another former Marine with whom Phelps developed an intense rivalry. Kelso, initially a claims investigator at California Fire and Life and later a district attorney investigator, helps Phelps and Elsa discover the truth behind the Suburban Redevelopment Fund, a program founded under the pretense of providing affordable housing for returning veterans. Members of the Suburban Redevelopment Fund include real estate magnate Leland Monroe, California Fire and Life Vice President Curtis Benson, and psychiatrist Harlan Fontaine. Fontaine's mentee is medical student Courtney Sheldon, a former Marine with whom Phelps and Kelso were stationed who becomes involved in the city's drug trade through a partnership with gangster Mickey Cohen. One of Fontaine's patients is Ira Hugboom, a former flamethrower operator from the Six Marines who became severely traumatized after unintentionally burning out a cave of civilians on Phelps orders. And so all of these guys are sort of tied in together Mm -hmm. from this Six Marines, all still in the L.A. area. Maybe a little far-fetched as far as uh, servicemen go, but you can see how all this stuff from the past sort of comes back into play in this noir story. One of the things, a little fun fact that that I found really interesting, the actor that plays Harlan Fontaine, the psychiatrist, also plays Micah in Red Dead Redemption 2. They're very different characters. Yeah. But uh, great range by that actor, and that's where I think you start to see where the video game, um, and film industries really start to blend into that more interactive film gameplay mm-hmm. type of, of new style of video gaming.
0: Absolutely. So that was a nice chunk of character development where we're going to see them. How does that fit into the story? So in 1947. After successfully solving a major murder case as a patrol officer, Phelps is promoted to detective. His tenure at the traffic desk results in solving multiple cases of murder and fraud. Six months later, after a stint on the burglary desk, Phelps is promoted to the homicide desk. He and Galloway investigate various cases that contain similarities to the Black Dahlia murder, arresting numerous suspects. However, Phelps is doubtful that they are apprehending the actual murderers. His theories are ultimately proven correct. They eventually track down and kill the real murderer, unbeknownst to the public. Upon being promoted into the Vice Division, Phelps investigates the distribution of military surplus morphine, stolen from the ship that had brought home his former Marine unit. He learns that several members of his former unit had stolen and distributed the morphine, only to be assassinated on the orders of Cohen. During this time, Phelps begins his affair with Elsa. Earl helps several prominent figures in the city draw attention away from a major prostitution scandal by exposing Phelps' adultery before he is able to draw a confession from Sheldon over his involvement with the stolen morphine. In exchange, Earl is given a place in the SRF, or the Suburban Redevelopment Fund, You know, I mean, that's what you got to do. You got to get your perks. Like, hey, I helped you out. Give Give me a little seat in what you're doing there. That's right. Give me a little something, something. A little something, something. Phelps' marriage ends. He becomes disgraced in the LAPD, and he is demoted to the arson desk, where he is tasked with investigating several suspicious house fires. Despite noting a solid connection between them and a housing development that the SRF operates, Phelps is warned off by Earl from pursuing the syndicate and its founder, Monroe. Seeking help, Phelps prompts Kelso to look into
1: the matter. Kelso discovers that the development uses unsuitable building materials and that his boss Benson is knowingly insuring them. Following a shootout at Monroe's mansion, Kelso learns that the syndicate used one of Fontaine's patients to burn down the homes of those who would not agree to sell their property to the fund. Eventually, his patient accidentally killed four people in one such fire and became irreversibly traumatized. The patient confronts and murders Fontaine at his clinic and kidnaps Elsa. Investigating the clinic, Phelps discovers that the syndicate was a front to defraud the federal government, knowing the government would later purchase the plots through eminent domain. Monroe would acquire land with money invested by the syndicate and build cheap houses to increase their value. Phelps also discovers that Sheldon, overcome with guilt, had provided Fontaine with the stolen morphine under the pretense that Fontaine would legally provide the morphine to medical facilities with the profits being reinvested into the SRF. Fontaine later murdered Sheldon after gaining knowledge of Kelso's investigation into the SRF. Kelso realizes that Fontaine's patient was Hogboom, Phelps and Kelso pursue Hogboom and Elsa into the Los Angeles River tunnels. The pair rescue Elsa, and Kelso shoots Hogboom to end his suffering. As the water rises within the tunnels following intense rainfall, Elsa and Kelso manage to escape, but a violent current kills Phelps. At Phelps' funeral, Earl delivers a eulogy claiming that Phelps was wrongly accused of wrongdoings and that he had exposed the corruption of Fontaine and Moreau. And, of course, Earl is Roy Earl, the former corrupt partner Mm -hmm. from the Vice desk. After Elsa leaves in disgust, Kelso asks Biggs to comfort her. Biggs confirms to Kelso that while Kelso and Phelps were not friends, they were never enemies. In a closing epilogue flashback, Kelso is revealed to have known about the stolen morphine, but refused to be involved in its distribution, knowing the trouble it would cause. And so a very classic noir tale. Phelps, the Boy Scout, has this flaw that ultimately leads to his downfall. Mm-hmm. He, he begins the affair with Elsa, the uh, singer from the club. And it sort of ruins his life and eventually, it, you know, it costs him his life. And so I think that they really nailed the noir elements of this.
0: I mean, that's absolutely it. I mean, noir in and of itself is never like happy go lucky. Oh, it's a happy story. They got the bad guys. Everyone moves on. It's, it's, it's a, like a very dark, grim reality where, like you said, like the boy scout takes one wrong step and that ends up what cost him his life. But there's still bad guys out there that are living, giving his eulogy, saying, Oh, this guy he was a good guy, and all these things. People are just like, no, like, why? Why did why does that guy get to go on being this corrupt cop? But our good guy, who's not all as good, loses it. And that's that's noir for you.
1: <laughs> that's noir, baby. And there's a yeah, great story. No, it and, and it does create a more compelling story because I think that it's more relatable to reality. It doesn't not everything always gets wrapped up in a nice, shiny bow. You know, mm-hmm. sometimes the bad guys lose. Sometimes they get to continue living. Mm-hmm. You know, it's not always perfect. And that's, yeah, I mean, that's the reality of life. I feel like stories like this are are extremely relatable. I think that this plot in particular is interesting, but there are some things about telling this story as a video game that I do find problematic specifically that you could get perfect ratings on all these cases and still technically be putting the wrong guy away just because Mm -hmm. the narrative has already determined that these guys are in the homicide desk these guys are not actually the ones who have committed murders and instead it's a serial killer so While it fits within the noir storyline, it also sort of makes the gameplay, what's the word I'm looking for here? Fruitless?
0: Yeah, yeah, it almost seems like the effort that you put in to get these perfect, get the questions right, you know what's going on, but for them to be like, no, it's, it's these guys... Even though, like, evidence might point to the contrary, you have to pick.
1: Right. Your your partner is always pointing you toward the spouse, and for a lot of those missions, it is the spouse mm-hmm. in those those cases. And, well, you know, yeah, you can get those five-star ratings and have done everything perfect, have gotten all the interrogations perfect, have put the right person away according to the case, but it doesn't matter because at the end of the day... It was never any of those people, and you never yeah. stood a chance. And that feels like a weird way to frame a video game. And yes. I'd love to see a, another detective game do it a little bit better than
0: that. If only there were an L.A. Noir number two. Sadly, we may <laughs> never get that. <laughs> but what we do have is a fantastic soundtrack. So L.A. Noir features an original score that accompanies the gameplay, alerting players at specific times. Music cues play when players approach items of interest during investigations. Like other games published by Rockstar, Ellie Noir also contains licensed music tracks provided by an in-game radio. Over 30 songs from artists such as Billie Holiday, Louis Armstrong, and Ella Fitzgerald feature in the game. To work on the score, the team engaged Andrew Hale and Simon Hale. Recorded at Abbey Road Studios, the score was inspired by orchestral scores from 1940s films. Music supervisor Ivan Pavlovich stated that Rockstar's focus on authenticity and realism inspired the composers to reflect the focus in the music. Andrew Hale felt that composing the game's score was a flexible process about setting a mood, as opposed to a mechanical process in which the music was specifically composed to fit with the time frames of the game the composers decided to focus on the latter after the music was produced. They also attempted to compose something that felt accessible to players, avoiding exclusively focusing on swing or jazz. Andrew Hale felt that the orchestral score assisted in this. To assist with the score, Rockstar engaged Woody Jackson, who had previously collaborated with the team on the music of Red Dead Redemption. Jackson reorchestrated one of the themes and wrote much of the in-game music. While the game's score largely uses a live orchestra, Jackson found that this led to difficulties with interactive music as the player can hear the loop. Inspired by film noir and the works of musicians like Bernard Herrmann, Jackson departed from the existing music and wrote original tracks in about a month. In addition to the score and licensed tracks, the game also features original voice recordings that, quote, create an authentic sound to suit the musical identity of the period. When the Real Tuesday Weld were commissioned to compose the original compositions, they sought vocals that could evoke the period, ultimately falling upon Claudia Brücken. Three vocal tracks were produced. I Always Kill the Things I Love, Guilty,
1: and Torched Song." The LA Noir official soundtrack comprises songs from the game composed and produced by Andrew Hale and Simon Hale. The soundtrack spans 28 tracks covering a duration of 55 minutes and features additional songs composed and performed by The Real Tuesday Weld and Claudia Brucken. It was first released on the iTunes Store on May 17, 2011, alongside LA Noir Remixed. In the context of the game, the soundtrack was well received. Kirk Hamilton of Kotaku ranked it upon the best game music of 2011, appreciating the vibe that it sets for the genre in time period of the game. Jen Bozier of Video Game Writers commended the soundtrack's recreation of the time period and felt that the music could be enjoyed outside the game. Evan Andre of SF Critic echoed these remarks and particularly praised the final three vocal tracks of the album, calling them a suitably enjoyable conclusion to the album. David Smith of London Evening Standard named the three vocal tracks Tense and Beautiful and wrote that the overall soundtrack is mood music of the finest caliber. The soundtrack won the award for original music at the 8th British Academy Games Awards. It was nominated for Best Original Score for a Video Game or Interactive Media at the 2011 International Film Music Critics' It was nominated for Best Original Score for a Video Game or Interactive Media at the 2011 International Film Music Critics Association Awards. The soundtrack was also nominated for Best Score for a Contemporary Alternative from Video Game Music Online.
0: Now, Derek, there was another thing that we breached on just slightly. There was an L.A. Noir Remixed EP, uh, which... Listen, if you could have picked this up, fantastic. If you just play it digitally, also fantastic. But <laughs> it consists of six jazz classics from the game's era, remixed by contemporary DJs. Advertised as a special installment of the Verve remix series, the album includes songs by artists of the period, such as Ella Fitzgerald, Lionel Hampton, Billie Holiday, and Dina Washington, remixed by DJs such as Tikla, DJ Premier, and Moody Man. It was first released on the iTunes Store on May seventeenth, twenty eleven, alongside the game's main soundtrack. Come the album on, received...
1: Come on. <laughs> like if this is not a, such a great example of the difference of like artists of the past and today: Ella Fitzgerald, Lionel Hampton, Billie Holiday, Dina Washington, remixed by Tikla, DJ Premier, and Moody Man. Now, I, to be fair, I've not listened to any of these, but... I haven't either. Man, Wait, stage listen. names have certainly changed. It used to just be names. Yeah. Now, now you're Tikla.
0: Listen, Tikla might be popping off. We don't know that. Because here's the thing, Derek. Here's the these thing. These might be great. I have it no might be idea. great. Because the album received generally, generally, and general b positive reviews. Boiser, of video game writers, dubbed it, quote, the gem of the collection stating that it invokes the feeling of the game as well as involving a nice retro vibe. Smith of London Evening Standard commended the soundtrack, calling the songs tastefully modernized. The album was nominated for Best Album Remix from Video Game Music Online.
1: Hey, hey. it really, it legitimately might be fantastic and shouldn't judge a book by its cover, but... Just stage name. Probably is not going to be someone that I, I see their name pop up and I think, hmm, yeah, I wonder what they're about. <laughs> I don't want to be tickled. Oh, man. So, this game um, obviously released originally on the PlayStation 3 and the Xbox 360, but it was also re released on the Nintendo Switch, the PS4, and the Xbox One, and it received generally favorable reviews, according to Metacritic. Sam Brooke of Push Square wrote that the re-release was certainly worth its asking price, and Matt Espinelli of GameSpot declared that it's well worth replaying or experiencing for the first time. GamePlanet's Toby Berger considered the Switch version an effective showcase for the console. The graphical upgrades divided critics. Some felt that the re-release had significantly upgraded the original game, while others felt it contained few differences, especially on the Nintendo Switch version. Though most concurred that the Switch version suffered from some dips in frame rate or other performance issues, Berger of Game Planet felt that it doesn't occur often enough to detract much from the overall experience. Push Square's Brook appreciated the upgraded visuals, particularly praising the new lighting engine. Some critics noted that the sharper textures and increased draw distances had emphasized the game's outdated visuals. Ben Tierer of PlayStation Official Magazine UK felt that the facial capture looked low-res when compared to the rest of the world. And Dave Mclehem of OXM said that the increased visuals can't disguise the poor character design. The addition of Joy-Con controls and touchscreen support for the Nintendo Switch also divided critics. Cody Perez of Game Revolution considered the Joy-Con controls a welcome addition and felt that the touchscreen support made the investigations more user-friendly. Simon Patine of Multiplayer.it corroborated the latter, stating that the game's existence on the Switch proved that it was possible for other games. Destructoid's Chris Carter was intrigued by the touchscreen controls, while IGN's Alana Pierce found the motion controls precise enough to correspond with the in-game animations. Conversely, Chris James, a pocket gamer, called the Switch controls lazy and pointless, questioning why Rockstar highlighted them in the game's marketing. Some reviewers noted a preference for the original controller setup and some critics commented on the additions and changes to the re-releases. Push Square's Brooke considered the change of the interrogation responses to be more fitting to Phelps' dialogue. Damien McFerrin of Nintendo Life and Espinelli of GameSpot found that the change was an improvement, but that they remained too vague. Several other critics concurred that the responses were ambiguous, and OPM's Tyra named the addition of the photo mode a highlight of the re-release, while Multiplayer.it's Tommaso Pugliese found it misplaced. And so I generally agree that one of the more challenging aspects of this game is sort of gauging the responses from Phelps. It doesn't matter if it says truth, doubt, lie, Mm
0: -hmm. good
1: cop, bad cop, lie, or accuse. I think is what it says. It's just... I think one thing that could have really improved this game was maybe a dialogue box that said, if you say this, this is what your response is going to be to give you a little bit of a preview, because there would be times where you would just kind of be like, "Eh, you know, is there something else that you could say? But Phelps would be like, why are you lying to me? (laughs) Tell me the truth. And it's like, okay, man, let's, Dial it back. You're at 11. I'm going to need you to come down to about a five because I don't have a lot of evidence, but you couldn't have possibly known that unless you played through the mission and knew what was going to happen ahead of time or if maybe you, I don't know, like used a guide or something like that just to get those those responses planned ahead of time. And I knew people that mm-hmm. did that, that mm-hmm. really just wanted to play it for the cinematics, did it in the black and white, and said, hey, I, I just want to see how this plays out, if it played out 100% perfectly. But a, a dialogue box would have helped a lot.
0: Yeah, and I think that's kind of the case with the VR case files, the the update that they had that put you into the VR aspect of the game, because most people thought it was pretty good. Uh Dan Stapleton of IGN concluded that felt less like a port and more like something that was always meant to be played this way. While a couple other reviewers were like, well, it raised the bar for what good VR should be. And I think this, I think it does lend itself to good VR being like a detective, having to pick things up and look around at them, see if you can find clues. I think it really lends itself to be that game. And especially for being a port. For a game that's already like pre-written for a third person point of view type thing, it, it really changed it up and it did pretty well with the driving. A lot of people say like the fist fights were a bit better because it's in your face, you're kind of feeling that engagement of it. And yeah, I think this is one of those games really that the VR aspect of the game partnered really well. It didn't, it didn't feel forced, it didn't feel like a cash grab it didn't feel like a skyrim re-release to be in three, you know and to be into virtual reality and and with that vr port of it like it's such a such a good way to take vr in that realm of like putting in the shoes of a detective which would be such a fun way to play through vr and it did pretty well i i think it's again one of those niche things but for those who got it
1: they liked it I mean, yeah, being a detective, I, I think it's a fun concept in in the video game realm. I, mm-hmm. I, and, you know, obviously there's tons of crime dramas out there. People yeah. find that stuff really fascinating. And, you know, to get that from a first-person perspective, I think, is a great idea for a video game.
0: I think that's exactly it. I, I think, and, and that's where VR struggles, is it's always felt gimmicky. It's always just felt like, oh, it's a neat thing I can do. I'm not going to play this again. But when you add in files, like that, like different case files to jump into and mystery, it just, it
1: just engages you better, in my opinion. Absolutely. I mean, when you play VR games now, it's just kind of like goofy sometimes. I find VR less entertaining to experience than to watch someone experience. Like if I could sit in a chair and watch someone do like Beat Saber mm-hmm. and watch them make a fool of themselves trying to dance and cut things that I can barely recognize. That's hilarious to me. Yeah. But a, a VR experience, I feel like we're still a little far away from experiencing that as like a good solo gameplay experience. Although being a detective in VR, probably a pretty close, good concept to what VR can yeah. really be. Bit better. Bit better. So Rockstar announced that it would release several pieces of DLC for LA Noire shortly following its release in May of 2011 all content could be pre-purchased in the Rockstar Pass one of the first examples of a season pass in video games five cases were released as DLC the first two also as pre-order bonuses they were called the Naked City a vice case inspired by the 1948 film of the same name and a slip of the tongue a traffic case focusing on motor vehicle theft. There was also Nicholson Electroplating, an arson case based on the 1947 explosion of the O'Connor Electroplating Company. There was Reefer Madness, a vice case surrounding illegal reefer operations, and the Consul's Car, a traffic case originally exclusive to PS3. All in-game items initially available as pre-order content were also made available as part of the Rockstar Pass. Rockstar announced L.A. Noire, the complete edition for Windows in September of 2011, containing all downloadable content and featuring some gameplay and technical enhancements. It was released on November 8th, 2011 in North America and on November 11th in Australia and Europe, followed by a release on PS3 and Xbox 360 on November 15th.
0: So it's always nice to get a couple of those things like... Order bonuses are exclusive, are frustrating. I'm glad that, like, well, am I glad that did a season pass? Not so much, but that you can actually access it if you wanted to by paying a couple dollarinos to be able to actually play those missions that aren't just locked behind a console. Um, it is nice to have, see at least that in a way.
1: Yeah, everyone just wants to play the full game. That's all we want. It's That's not a big deal. For.
0: That's all we asked for. D- or-
1: DLC is great. If it's great, if it's good, if it's actually yeah fine, I yeah. Enjoy I mean, it. if
0: that's the thing, if DLC can add to the game, even if it's not adding like a full expansion, but like a couple more missions, a couple more stories to get into, um, especially like fun. Well, I don't know if you call it fun. I guess they are fun, even though it's a crime, but that are based on like real life events or take some spurs on it. I think is very interesting. Maybe not fun, maybe interesting. Yeah. Uh, but I think they're also done really well, and the DLC in and of itself was also. pretty fun aspect of it. So let's let's get to wrapping it up. Let's get to what did the critics think of the game overall. I mean we have some ideas on what they thought of VR and some additional content on the the soundtrack. What about the game itself? So Ellie Noir received generally favorable reviews from critics according to Metacritic. It was praised for its facial animation, narrative, characters performances, music, world design, and interrogation gameplay, though responses to the shooting and driving mechanics as we had said were mixed to poor. The Guardian's Steve Boxer described it as a breakthrough for games. Edge felt that the most elements are achieved better by other games, but that few developers have brought such a diffuse set of genres together so atmospherically, stylishly, or cohesively. Games Trailers wrote that it sets a new standard for storytelling in video games, though noted some overall limitations compared to other games. Reviewers praised the game's facial animation with several stating that it is the best in any video game. Game Trailers wrote that it allows a level of emoting that's never been seen in interactive entertainment. Matt Lieb of GameZone felt that the interrogation mechanic would have been unrealistic without the use of motion scan. Joystick's Justin McElroy considered the technique nothing short of revolutionary, noting that the technology allowed the player to view an actor's entire performance. Edge found that it added a human element to the interrogations. Some reviewers found that the body animations failed to match the faces, sometimes failing to bridge the uncanny valley, but felt that
1: the effect added to the realism and subtlety of performance. Game spies Ryan Scott considered L.A. Noire to be one of the strongest stories Rockstar's ever published. In Giant Bombs Brad Shoemaker called it among the best in the business, citing its cohesiveness and tension near its climax. Liebel of GameZone thought that the focus on narrative and performances excelled the game over Rockstar's action-oriented titles. Boxer of the Guardian praised the narrative's pacing and arc. Carolyn Petit of GameSpot found that the game's later chapters made the slower pace of the early story more worthy. And GamePro's Will Herring similarly lauded the game's final act, noting the narrative's accuracy in its portrayal of Los Angeles. Conversely, some reviewers felt that the game became less interesting towards the end, and some found it became repetitive. Hilary Goldstein of IGN wrote that the cases that strayed from the formula, particularly the homicide desk, were among the best, though noted that the game failed to reach the emotional heights of heavy rain. The teat of GameSpot found Phelps' character development fascinating, though Herring of GamePro wrote that his rapport with partners made the game more interesting. Giant Bomb Shoemaker felt that the character's dialogue made them feel appropriate to the setting. Critics lauded the cast's performances with particular praise for Aaron Staten, John Noble, Andrew Conley, and Michael McGrady. Edge felt that Conley dominated any scene he's in. Some reviewers found that the performances made the characters feel more believable and convincing. IGN's Goldstein praised the actors' mannerisms. Ryan McCaffrey of Official Xbox Magazine wrote that the performances made it a hell of a great drama to watch unfold. Similarly, McElroy of Joystick felt that they made it one of the most compelling video game stories ever. Eurogamer's Ollie Welsh wrote that Staten as Phelps does his best with a dry character. Game Informer's
0: Helgson considered the interrogations the most compelling aspect of Ellie Noir. IGN's Goldstein concurred, comparing them to dialogue-heavy scenes from role-playing games. Shoemaker of Giant Bomb favorably compared the interrogations to the dialogue choices of Mass Effect 2, noting that they provide new energy to each case. Petit of GameSpot found that the interrogations became more interesting once the player received more autonomy. OXM's McCaffrey appreciated the vigor brought to the game by the interrogations, but criticized their passive nature of simply listening and pressing a single button. Some reviewers considered the system flawed due to its vague and sometimes illogical choices. Like Derek said, you're like, yeah, I don't think you did that. And Phelps just flies off the handle, flips a desk, shoots the wall. (laughs) You did this. That's not what I meant. I was just saying that I don't think that they
1: took that candy bar that was over there. Well, right. And then right after that, he's back to normal Phelps. Oh, okay. yeah, i like, oh, glad. We can yeah. all calm down. <laughs> or he, he accuses them, and then you, you say, oh, I don't actually have any evidence. Oh, you know what? Never mind. You know what? Don't worry You're
0: about be- it. You're beautiful. Don't worry about that. You just leaves him, like, <laughs> just guilt-stricken right there. <laughs> and um, I actually, I changed my mind about this. <laughs> exactly. Critics were divided on the game's investigation elements. GameSpot's Petite called it compelling and praised the rich details, while Eurogamer's Welsh called it clunky and laborious. Helkson of Game Informer felt that they became repetitive over the course of the game, feeling more like an Easter egg hunt than an actual investigation, while Liebel of GameZone criticized the lack of significant penalty. So if you miss some stuff or not doing it right, it just kind of like fills it in. It's like, you suck, but eh, we'll continue on. Several critics commented on the game's action sequences and driving controls. Eurogamer's Welsh found the foot chases to be memorable and fun, comparing them to police television shows, while game informers Helgson's wrote that they became predictable and repetitive. Most reviewers considered the core gameplay simple to understand, though GameZone's label felt that this lessened the experience, and game trailers described the controls as floaty and imprecise. Petit found the cars to be responsible and swift. Eh, and Shoemaker of Giant Bomb called the car chases his favorite aspect of the action sequences. Other reviewers uh, concurred, but said the driving was less impressive outside of those car chases. That was, that was me and Derek. Those were, those were us critics.
1: <laughs> those car chases are pretty tough. You, you pull the handbrake, and I mean, you're sliding into a yeah. wall, into a building every time
0: yeah well exactly and and then the other thing too is like with with gunplay some people compared it they're like this is on par with what rockstar's been doing which is also i've always thought kind of poor in rockstar games like the gunplay's never been fantastic
1: uh, it's not yeah like red dead redemption and red dead redemption 2 i think do a really nice job yeah. i think at this in this era GTA 4 did a better job yes. than um than LA noire and i think GTA 4 and Red, the original Red Dead Redemption were probably on par with each other. But yeah, um, gunplay in this game was mostly pointless.
0: Exactly. It just served the purpose of the story, which is understandable. It was not a game built around it. It was not a core mechanic that needed to advance what you were supposed to do. It was an addition to make you feel like an L.A. cop in
1: 47. On the day of the North American release, Take-Two Interactive shares closed up 7.75%, a three-year high for the company which was attributed to the game's positive reception. The game shipped 4 million units across both platforms in its first month. In the US, L.A. Noir was the best-selling game in May of 2011, selling 899,000 copies across both its release platforms, which Wedbush Securities considered lower than its estimate of 1 million units. It was the best-selling game in June of 2011 as well, but had dropped out of the top 10 by July. McNamara felt pressure for the game to sell well. The getaway sold 4 million units, and he was ultimately satisfied with its commercial performance. The game had shipped almost 5 million copies by December of 2011 and approximately 7.5 million copies by September of 2017. In May of 2011, Take-Two CEO Strauss Zelnick called L.A. Noire another strong franchise for this company. In November, he said that the game was Take-Two's most successful new release in the past fiscal year and reiterated its importance to the company. Rockstar said in February of 2012 that it was considering what the future may hold for L.A. Noire as a series, but said not to count out a possible sequel. The following year, in March of 2013, Take-Two's COO Carl Sladeoff reiterated that L.A. Noire was an important franchise to the company. In May 2021, Aaron Staten said that he never heard word about a sequel, but would be curious what they would tell due to Phelps' death. And I don't know that a sequel to L.A. Noir needs to necessarily be a direct story sequel, but I would certainly be interested in another L.A. Noir style game. Yeah, You know, it's been 11 years since this game came out, um, Obviously, had a very long development before that, like we talked about. I've not heard anything being in the works now. I'm sure if we were to see something come out, it would either have come out during the GTA leaks, mm-hmm. something like that. So it'd probably be a long time before we saw a true sequel to the L.A. Noire franchise. But regardless of if there is that direct sequel, I do think that this game heavily influenced Rockstar heavily influenced the facial recognition technology mm-hmm. that we see in video games now and really impacted. I mean, just the emotions that you see within video games, just even within Rockstar, you know, do you get that same Red Dead Redemption to mm-hmm. those true mm-hmm. actors? Like they're you seeing their pain or their anger or other emotions within those things where they really do become more like interactive films. I don't think you do see that without L.A. Noir kind of leading the way.
0: Yeah. And that's why like at the top of the show, I was like, it's kind of like a tech demo.
1: You know, this was a game that
0: they're like, OK, we got this like studio. It seems like they got a good idea. And realistically, it was more so that Rockstar probably like helped these publishing rights because of the motion studio that they created and it's it's less of absolutely. like that's a cool story game like that's go for it but we need to sell this mocap idea to get that lifelike animation and then we're going to incorporate it into GTA 5 into Red Dead Redemption 2 and really like focus on adding that element that's not just making it a fun shoot 'em up game but to like really tug on heartstrings to feel the human connection to these characters
1: absolutely i think that was such a massive factor for them I really do think it's paved the way for other games to be this mm-hmm. way. I mean, Last of Us, God of mm-hmm. War, really heavy narrative-driven games. There's so many. Obviously, there's a lot that have also followed that GTA pathway, that season pass pathway as well. L.A. Noir has sort of influenced both, I think, the single-player campaigns and... Just DLC packs within, uh, you know, that same capacity and obviously two very, very different pathways into mm-hmm. gaming. But yeah, I mean, L.A. Noir as a tech demo, I think you're 100% right. It really did sort of usher in this new narrative gameplay and establish it in a way that other games hadn't before. Yeah, I I think that's it, and I think that's leading us into, I think most of what you already said,
0: but as always, Derek, let the people know, why did we choose this game, and what do you think of it?
1: All those things I just said. Beautiful. Uh, No. (laughs) (laughs) I won't say the end. I really do. I enjoy this game a lot. I've played this game through a few times. I played it through when it came out on the Xbox 360. And I do have the Nintendo Switch version just because when the Switch came out, there weren't a ton of games out for it. Mm-hmm. And I was trying to sort of experiment again with playing more mobile versions of games. Sure. But playing them in the capacity that I had played them in before, that was sort of a new concept. So being able to play this game again on the Nintendo Switch was a lot of fun. But I do think that there were certain avenues that just weren't explored very well. I think that. The facial recognition, you know, they got really caught up in that and it looks great. It really does. But there are so many gameplay elements within this, whether it be, oh, hey, there might be a clue here. Okay, yeah, I should pick that up. Well, there's a pile of papers there. There's a Mm -hmm. a stack of dishes. There's an empty bottle. It's like, what thing is he going to pick up? Oh, the empty bottle. Not look through the stack of papers. I mean... I just feel like sometimes this game made you feel like an idiot if you weren't going out and finding this very, very specific thing, if you weren't taking this very specific path, and if you weren't taking a very risky approach to doing these interrogations. And then even if you were doing, like we said, during the the plot segment of this, even if you weren't doing everything 100% correctly, or you were doing them a hundred percent correctly, you were ending up in the same spot, basically, unless you did so terribly that they gave you like a one star rating out of the five, yeah, then you would just have to redo the case and so it didn't feel like there were a lot of true consequences for this. There are so many games out there that have multiple endings. And that was not a new established thing when L.A. Noir came out. Mm-hmm. And I feel like this would have been such a great uh, use of that style of gaming. Yeah. But they didn't do it because they had already established what they thought the narrative needed to be. They wanted to make this the game that it was regardless of how you played it. And I think that ultimately that hurt the game in a lot of ways. But it's still a lot of fun. I think everyone should play it. I don't think it has a ton of replay value yeah. It's the biggest thing. So it's a six out of 10 for me. What about you?
0: Yeah, I fully agree. And I would love to see if you got an LA noir two or a spiritual successor of it, that multiple ending thing where if you got all your cases, perfect. It's the true movie. If you didn't, some things were muddied. Maybe some people went away. Some people got fired. Or just you, you got an okay ending or you can get like a total failure. Um, I, I think would be very interesting to see if that would apply. But yeah, as a game, again, for me, tech demo first, game second, I really enjoyed it. You know, I picked it up that midnight release at, at Best Buy after people were hyping it up in line. And I took it home and played it And I was like, this is actually really cool. And there are those uncanny valley moments. And it's been meme on the internet a bunch, like that old man scrunching his eyes and his face up like while he's like staring at you. He's like, I'm not lying. And you're like, well, (laughs) that one's interesting. Yeah.
1: So the the facial reactions always changed almost immediately. They were like, yeah, I don't think that there's anything going wrong. And this is a podcast without video, so you can't see my face. (laughs) But basically like their eyes would just go off to the side or they'd like roll their (laughs) eyes up into space and they would kind of like bounce around. And it's like, Okay, this is a really weird way to converse with someone. Yeah. They they really did. They they had a an active conversation with you. And then whenever it was your decision to decide if you're gonna say truth, doubt, lie, good cop, bad cop, accuse, all of a sudden they're a totally different person. Mm-hmm.
0: So it it worked. It worked for the era, the first of its kind, it worked. Was it buggy? Was it interesting to see at times of course but overall the story was fantastic it was a great game to play and if i had to give it a rating i would give it a mm, eyes out of a mm, face going down and looking down out of a mm, out of a face going that way with a mm, 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 um just out of 10
1: alex turned into scooby doo <laughs> just now <laughs> <laughs> that's what we got to do with Scooby-Doo. <laughs> yeah, that's what we need. We need an L.A. noir like, mystery machine game. Let's All do right. that. Next up, let's see. Yoinks. <laughs> Research for this episode was done by Alex Kendall, Derek Baker. The intro and outro music was written and recorded by our friend Evan Barr, and our lovely artwork was given to us by Aaron Shattuck.
0: As always, we want to thank the beautiful people over on Patreon. Of course, listening to us is amazing support, but if you'd like to throw a couple bucks our way for some bonus things, you can check us out at patreon.com slash finish the fight. want to thank some select members today with Sky the Bear, Duststorm, Mr. Chaff, Snide T-Bird, that LL gamer guy, Nick Hyman, Chief, Climbing Spork, Mr. 1898, Herbie Spicy, Lee Tom John, Keller Kane and Brian Yost. So thank you all so much for your support.
1: You can find this podcast on iTunes, Spotify, or most likely your favorite podcast listening platform. If you haven't yet, please leave us a review. It helps us out a lot, and we love to hear from you.
0: And as always, you can check us out over on Twitch. You can see me over at twitch.tv slash sourman70. That's twitch.tv slash sourman 70 as well as Derek at twitch.tv slash thebakerman247.
1: That is twitch.tv slash thebakerman247. In addition to that, you can find us on Instagram, Twitter. We're also on Discord. It's free to join. Alex and I are hanging out in there all the time, and we'd love to see you. And that has been our coverage of L.A. Noir. What are your
0: thoughts on reviving the kind of detective noir genre, bringing that especially with you've got like portable devices like the steam deck and the switch that you can bring these things around with you should we see more of it in vr or should we lay it to rest let us know on our socials as always i'm your host alex kendall
1: and i am your host roy earl and this has been finish the fight a gaming podcast